0: I think I'm maybe I, I should just turn this thing on. I'm on. I'm on. Great to be with you all this morning. I feel very distant from you up here. I feel like I'm on a stage and I am scared of heights, which is problematic. but even though I'm up here, I. Hopefully we can connect, it's great to be with you all, so Simon, I know a lot of you here this morning and um, for those I have not had, uh, yet had the pleasure of meeting, um, my name is Simon, I have a wife, Lisa, great wife, long suffering wife, she's been with me for 15 years now, poor thing, um, I have three kids, Connor's 13, Charlotte's 11 and Thomas is 6, um, what do I do for a job, Well. It's a long story. I was a pastor for about 10 or 11 years. I worked in a lot of different churches Anglicans, the Brethren, the Baptists, um, AOG, Elam. So I have a very fruit salad theology. Um, One day I was working in a large church in town at the time and I felt God call me um, into a new ministry. And uh, so I, I went off to law school and became a lawyer. And I remember the pastor at the time coming into my office, he saw the Law Part 2 books on my desk and he said, Simon, I can't believe you're leaving the ministry. And I said, with love, with grace and respect, I'm not leaving the ministry, I'm starting a new ministry. I believe God, through the practice of law, can help me and use me to reach clients. So I have a new parish now, a new church, that's all the clients I serve at Gazebert and all the colleagues at Gazebert, they're all in my parish. So I have quite a big church, which is fantastic, and I love pastoring them all, Um, most days, um, <clears throat> and I also look after a ministry called the Interchurch Council for Hospital Chaplaincy, it's a great ministry, so hospitals going into, sorry, hospitals going into chaplains, no, chaplains going into hospitals, and chaplains, um, did, it's an amazing ministry, so I, I really enjoy um, serving and working with the, with the team there, so I manage the employment team at Gaysbert, and um, I help people out with employment issues, um, which is fun um, most of the time. Uh, and uh, so that's what really kind of brings me here today. We're looking at John chapter 17, um, and it is a great passage of Scripture. Scripture, John chapter 17. I'm actually going to look at just the first five verses um, with you this morning, and I love preaching um, through the Gospels, and the reason I love preaching through the Gospels is for my 40th birthday, I'm actually 40, not yet, 39, but for my 40th birthday, I went to Israel. I got... The wife signed it off and said, I could go to Israel with my dad, and we had a wonderful time. Went over there in March. Who's been to, anyone been to Israel? Few people. I know young Nicola and Curtis, you've been a few times, lucky things. I actually wanted to go back next year, but yeah, my wife is a tough negotiator, so just working on that. Um, We're looking at John chapter 17, right? Now, John chapter 17 is a prayer that Jesus prayed, and um, before we... uh, not sure which way to put it. Oh, turn it on. Yes, that's, that's good. Oh, there we go. Now, I'm sorry. What you're going to do is you're going to see a couple of photos of me with these pictures when I was in Israel. That's because I needed evidence to my wife that I didn't go to Vegas, um, and I actually went to Israel. So now, the passage we're looking at this morning is John chapter 17, verses 1 to 5. So if you have a Bible with you, I'm going to use the, uh, the NIV, the never incorrect version, and we'll read um, together. The I don't have the text on the screen, so it's just a photo of me in Jerusalem in the background. Um, hopefully you've got it on your phone. After, after Jesus had said this, so after Jesus had said this, he looked toward heaven and he prayed. Um, sorry. Oh no, I've knocked it. Oh no, maybe it's turned off again. Sorry. One moment. Sorry. Mark, my tech friend. Okay, we can go back to the text. After, John, after Jesus had said this, he looked toward heaven. Lovely. Um, no, I'm going to go the other way. Let's go back. No. Which way do I go, Mark? Oh, that way, that way, that way. That's, that's good. After Jesus had said this, he looked toward heaven and prayed. Normally when I'm speaking, I just have someone down the back who does this. I don't even, I'm not very, anyway. After Jesus had said this, he looked toward heaven and he prayed. Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that your son may glorify you. For you granted him authority over all people, that he might give eternal life to all those you have given him. Now this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I have brought you glory on earth by finishing the work you have given me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. So, this passage is set in the Last Supper room. The disciples have been um, uh, meeting with Jesus, and right at the end of the Last Supper, Jesus prays with them. And at the conclusion of this prayer, if you read John chapter 18, verse 1, it says the disciples left the Last Supper, they left the, the room with Jesus, and they crossed over the Kidron Valley. And so there you have in the background is Jerusalem. The one, This is old Jerusalem, the old city of Jerusalem, a one-kilometer kind of walled city. And just um, through the, um, the Golden Gate, which is just um, over to my, my, my right there, is where they believe the the, the Last Supper. There's a room where pilgrims believe this is the room where the Last Supper took place. And after the Last Supper, um, they crossed the Kidron Valley. So that's the Kidron Valley there in in the background. Um, And there's now kind of like a main road that goes through there. And they crossed the Kidron Valley and they went to the Garden of Gethsemane, which I'll show you in a moment. I'm actually standing at the top of the Mount of Olives, so you have Jerusalem in the background, they cross this Kidron Valley, and the Mount of Olives is there um, on the other side of the Kidron Valley. Right at the bottom of the Mount of Olives is the Garden of Gethsemane. And of course, a lot of um, wealthy Jews um, are, are buried on the, uh, the Mount of Olives there, but they've ran out of, run out of space, apparently, so you can't actually be buried any, any longer on the Mount of Olives. Now... This is, of course, so you can see the Kidron Valley in the background that Jesus would have crossed. And right at the bottom, this is the famous, the famous path, if you like. The, so Jesus, the triumphant entry into Jerusalem, Jesus comes riding in a donkey in Palm Sunday, which we all um, remember. And, and this is what was happening. Um, they, Jesus would come down this, 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 essentially down the Mount of Olives, down this path, and he'd cross over the Kidron Valley. He'd spend his time in Jerusalem He'd have his last supper with the disciples. He'd cross back over the Kidron Valley and into the Garden of Gethsemane. The Garden of Gethsemane doesn't look, wouldn't have looked like this. Obviously, this is a pilgrim site. Okay? So we, we know that this is the rough location, but there is sufficient evidence, in my view, that this is the Garden of Gethsemane, maintained now by the Franciscan, uh, Franciscan Church, and they've been really in the, in the Holy Land for about um, 800 years. They've been celebrating. Now, Right next to the Garden of Gethsemane is what's called the Church of Agony. It's really good when you change your name that you didn't go with that. Um, you know, from Botany Life to the Church of Agony. It's, it's not really like that kind of a, a marketing type <laughs> thought, you know, in terms of compelling people to come to church. And this church celebrates or remembers Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane and the, the agony that he would have been under. And you can see this beautiful mosaic, this, this painting at the top there, Jesus... Um, there and with his disciples, some of them had fallen asleep and um, and him agonizing as he thought about the, at the cross. And so this really sets the scene for John chapter 17, verses 1 to 5. So John chapter 17 is actually a prayer split into three parts. And this morning, I'm going to just talk you through the first part, which is John chapter 17, verses 1 to 5. So one prayer... Three distinct parts, and Mike can you just pass me a water bottle? Thanks Mike and so, in this first part this morning it 's an amazing prayer because Jesus is basically praying for himself, and um, as you 'll work through John chapter 17 in the next couple of weeks, <laughs> you 'll talk about different aspects of the prayer, but the first part of the prayer is Jesus praying for himself and so imagine the disciples gathered around Jesus at the Last Supper, and they are they are eavesdropping on the prayer that Jesus is praying. It's a remarkable prayer for two reasons, because the prayer is giving us a window, a snapshot into Jesus' relationship with the Father. Jesus had this beautiful relationship with the Father. I mean, the whole point of John's Gospel is is essentially this idea that Jesus and the Father are one. They are so intimate, so close to each other, and we see this in John chapter 17, verses 1 to 5. The intim- intimacy of Jesus with the Father. The second, so it gives us this snapshot, this window on Jesus' relationship with the Father. The other point about the prayer, um, verses one to five, is that, is that the theme of the prayer is actually the sovereignty of God, the sovereignty of God. Jesus actually, in verses one to five, is exploring this idea that God is sovereign. And at the conclusion of the Last Supper, He's overheard by the disciples praying. It's an insight into the relationship of Jesus with the Father, and it's an insight into Jesus describing the sovereignty of God. So, the core of this prayer, if you like, is that it's a snapshot, a window into Jesus' relationship with the Father and the sovereignty of God. Now, the word sovereignty we don't use a lot, you know, in society these days, but the idea of sovereign is. This idea of this person possessing supreme power. Who's the sovereign's representative in New Zealand? I asked this at BBI last year when they asked me to come and do a presentation on who makes the law. Who makes the law in New Zealand? Any thoughts? Oh, come on, friends. Parliament? No. Actually, the person who makes the law in New Zealand is Dame Patsy Reddy. Until she takes out her pen and signs off. It doesn't get royal assent, and it's not law. Amazing power put into one person, the sovereign's representative, Dame Patsy Reddy. So she possesses, actually, supreme power in terms of making law here in New Zealand. No matter how much parliament wants to pass law, until Dame Patsy Reddy signs off, it's not an act of parliament. God is the director. So instead of saying this morning that God is supreme, uh, God is sovereign, I'm going to run us through a little bit of an analogy, if you like. That God is the director, and that human beings are the actors. That human history is God's story, that we are actors, that God is the director, that God is sovereign. And I'm going to give you four reflections this morning on this idea of God um, as the director. And the first um, reflection is this, is that God directs the plot of life. Father, the hour has come. These opening verses to the prayer, they actually remind us that, that Jesus was reflecting on what was before him. And he says, Father, the hour has come. My times are in your hands. God, the plot for my life, it's in your hands. And Jesus actually had to entrust himself to God's will. It's the hardest thing to do, to trust God, actually. I struggle with that. But Jesus, this beautiful opening to the prayer, Father, the hour has come. Father, you direct the plot of my life. You know, there's a lot of... You know, in society today, we talk a lot about um, anxiety. And it's kind of... There's been a lot more discussion in the media and, and on various social media sites about people struggling with, with anxiety. And, you know, the thing about anxiety, that you let these... It's so easy to let fears about the future and worries about the future take a grip on, grip on the mind. I know when... I remember... Um, about 18 months ago to two years ago, I I had a situation where I I felt so anxious about a situation. And anxiety is like a claw that can kind of grip and hold on to your mind. And I I want you to think for a moment, I was thinking about this, I wonder if Jesus felt anxious about what was before him. You know, pondering the cross that was before him. In this prayer, we see the divinity of Jesus. Father, the hour has come. This idea of he was submitted to God's will for his life, and yet, if you go over to the Garden of Gethsemane, we see the humanity of Jesus. Father, if it is, um, you know, if it's your will, then let it be done. But you know, not my will. But you can see, kind of, and that's why the church is called the Church of Agony, as Jesus agonized over what was before him. And I wonder if Jesus felt a sense of anxiety about what was before him. I mean, how did Jesus? How did Jesus confront his own future? The fact that the cross was right there before him. I mean, two things in terms of how Jesus responded. One, he prayed. Just like Paul says in Philippians 4, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer, that's a great start. But secondly, Jesus doesn't pray a prayer of petition. He prays a prayer of disposition. See, he doesn't say, God, take away the circumstances. God, um, change what's about to happen to me. God, intervene. He says, the prayer of disposition is, God, I know what's set before me, and Father, the time has come. My times are in your hands. He's like the psalmist who prayed in Psalm 3115. Father, my times are in your hands. Um, Victor Frankl was a famous psychiatrist who survived Auschwitz and a couple of other Nazi concentration camps. He was a famous psychiatrist, and, uh, and he wrote a lot about the fact that We can't change our circumstances in life, but we can change our disposition, our attitude towards our circumstances in life. And in one of his very famous books, Man's Search for Meaning, um, he said this about um, Auschwitz. The experiences of camp life show that a man does have a choice of action. Man can preserve a vestige of spiritual freedom, of independence of mind, even in such terrible conditions of psychic and physical stress. There was sufficient proof that everything can be taken from a man but one thing, the last of the human freedoms to choose one's attitude in any given set of circumstances, to choose one's own way. And this is Jesus. At the end of the Last Supper, the disciples listening in, he says, Father, my times are in your hands. Father, the hour has come. And even though you, you might, after he crosses over the Kidron Valley into the Garden of Gethsemane and we see the humanity of Jesus, right there and then we saw the divinity that this kind of divine sense in which Jesus was prepared to submit himself to the will of the Father. Paul the Apostle met with the church elders of the church in Ephesus and he was on his way to trial in Rome. And there's a very famous verse in Acts chapter 20 when Paul actually says that, that the elders in the church in Ephesus were crying because they're about to set Paul off on, on his journey towards Rome. He was going to go to Rome and, and face trial. And they were they were saying Paul do you know what faces you out there? Do you know the prison and, and that and that will face you in prison and, and hardships. And Paul in Acts chapter 20 verse 24 says um, I, the Holy Spirit has warned me that prison and hardships are facing me. However, I consider my life worth nothing to me. If only I may finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me, the task of testifying to the gospel of God's grace. Father, my time's are in your hands. You direct the plot of life. The second aspect of the prayer is God is the director, therefore he deserves the credit, all the credit so we read in the, in the passage of Scripture here, glorify your son so that he can give glory back to you. The Greek word for glorify is doxazo. And it, and it means this. I've put it up there on the slide. To cause the dignity and worth of some person or thing to become manifest and acknowledged. I love that. To cause. To cause the dignity and worth of some person or thing to become manifest and acknowledged. So in one sense, we can say that Jesus was was talking about his death, that through his death, God would be glorified, but it would be a mistake to leave it there. Actually, Jesus didn't just want to glorify God through his death, he wanted to glorify God through his life. And it's easy to think, you know, when we think about the word glorify, we think of it as a spiritual word. You know, we glorify God through worship, through spiritual activities, prayer, through fasting but the wonderful thing about Jesus is that he looked for opportunities throughout his through the daily grind to glorify God day after day God I glorify you not just in my death but God that I might glorify you in my life that my life might cause you to be glorified that my life might cause you to be glorified and we think about God glorifying sorry Jesus glorifying God in terms of how he lived and it's easy to think of the miracles and to think, yes, through the miracles, God was glorified, absolutely. But I want to suggest this morning that one of the key ways that you and I can be part of this tomorrow, Monday when you're at work or whatever Monday looks like for you is that we can glorify God by the way we treat people. See, the way, one of the remarkable ways that Jesus glorified God in his daily life and, and pointed people towards God God, is the way he interacted with people. I mean, the way he demonstrated to human beings like the woman who had suffered medically for 12 years, the way he allowed her to reach out to him and touch the edge of his garment, that she might be healed, the way he'd reveal the glory of God to people who felt like they were actually labeled as sinners, the way he'd actually turn up at Zacchaeus' house and have a lunch with him and say, Zacchaeus, even though you're a tax collector and you ripped off all these people, I'm still prepared to be with you at lunch. And after lunch, we know that Zacchaeus stood up and was transformed by something that happened with a conversation with Jesus over lunch. And in conversations he had with, with like the woman at the well, the Samaritan, the woman, two things he wouldn't do as a Jew, hang out with a Samaritan and as a male, he wouldn't hang out with a woman. But Jesus actually throughout his life showed ways that actually God can be glorified by the way we interact with people. So it wasn't just in the miracles that God glorified, that Jesus glorified God, but it was the way He treated people. In fact, Paul the apostle says in 1 Corinthians 10:31, "Whether we eat or we drink, whatever we do, do it all for the glory of God. Whether we eat or drink, whatever we do, do it all for the glory of God." So Jesus was not saying, "Glorify your son." Actually, in terms of going forward, yes, glorify your son, uh, glorify you, God. Through, through the death and what's about to happen next, but also looking back on my life, have I, have I glorified God through my life? And Jesus absolutely did that. Um, is it possible to practice law in a way that glorifies God? I mean, are you, I, no one's even prepared to give me an answer. That's fair enough. Is the idea of a Christian lawyer an oxymoron? Can you actually put Christian and lawyer together in the same sentence? There's lots of bad lawyer jokes. Actually, one of the, one of the great um, bad lawyer jokes is there's, a, the, there's an old movie called The Bee Movie. My kids watched it many years ago. There's a great scene where there's a mosquito and the mosquito is dressed up in a suit and has a briefcase, and flies over to the bee, and the bee says to the mosquito, when did you become a lawyer? And the mosquito said, I've always been a blood-sucking parasite, all I needed was a briefcase. Um, <laughs> poor lawyers. <laughs> so, <clears throat> and I'm hoping that when I die, I'm thinking probably the, the grave option, I'm hoping there won't be two graves, you know, one for the Christian and one for the lawyer, that I'm a whole person, that I'm integrated, that today is not Sunday and I think about God and tomorrow I forget about God and think about the law. So many years ago, not that many years ago, but I am getting old, maybe five or six, I, um, I went and spoke at, this, uh, at the Australasian Christian Lawyers Conference, and one night I was there and I was thinking, you know, we should set something like this up at back at home. And so I've been involved for many years, for the last few years, running the New Zealand Christian Lawyers Conference. And, and we run that once a year. We bring Christian lawyers together, academics and judges and lawyers. And we think about, what does it mean to glorify God in the practice of law? The, the theme for this year, ready for this, hold on, to your, hold on to your socks. The theme for this year was lawyers as ambassadors for Christ. Imagine if lawyers, Christian lawyers, were actually ambassadors for Christ, they we weren't just zealous litigators or what have you, but we were actually thinking about ways to glorify God through the practice of law. Jesus said, glorify your son that your son may glorify you. I was, he was thinking about his death, but surely he must have been reflecting on the life that had been, that all the ways that he would glorify God in the daily grind. How can we glorify God in the daily grind? Whether I eat or I drink, whatever I do, I do it all for the glory of God. Jesus is the direct, uh, God is the director, and therefore, he deserves all the credit. Thirdly God, is the, thirdly, God is the director over all of the actors in human history. For you granted him authority over all people, that he might give eternal life to all those you have given him. Now, this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. History is a story that continues to unfold, and we are actors in that story. Um, history is not a random collection of meaningless events. Um, Harold Bloom, the commentator on Shakespeare, wrote a very famous piece about Macbeth, and this is what he wrote, wrote when he was thinking about life and history. He wrote, Life's but a walking shadow, a poor player that struts and frets his hour upon the stage and then is heard no more. It is a tale told by an idiot, Full of sound and fury, signifying nothing. Life, history has no meaning, has no purpose. Actually, this prayer points it is in contrast to that. Um, Jesus said, "God, number one, God has given me authority over all people." That's what Jesus said in this prayer. He reflects, "God has given me authority over all people." History has meaning and purpose. It's a story that continues to be told because Jesus has authority over all people. And therefore, actually, God is deeply interested in human affairs. God didn't just create the universe and kind of set it into motion and leave it there. The Bible, Jesus is reflecting on the sovereignty of God in this prayer and saying, God, you have given me authority over all people. And secondly, Jesus has authority over all matters relating to eternal life. And so he actually just, he points out a few little things about eternal life here, just a few kind of pop points. One. What's a pop point? I wouldn't have a clue. I just made it up. One. Three little points that Jesus makes about eternal life. One, it's a gift. You see, one of the biggest questions people ask in life, and you'd have to ask someone who's really um, a a great theologian like Roland, but the thing is, are some people predestined to receive this eternal life thing? I mean, for centuries, theologians have said, um, are some people predestined for eternal life and others not? And maybe perhaps the answer to that question is hidden in this prayer, in this text, because Jesus starts off with the first proposition, Jesus, uh, God has given Jesus all authority, which leads to the second point, secondly, Jesus therefore has to make judgments in all these matters. So the third point is, if Jesus has authority over all matters relating to eternal life, and therefore he has to make judgments, the only question I'm left with Do I actually trust the character of God, the character of Jesus? Do I believe that he's just? It's gone so quiet. It's not so much, maybe, you know, are people predestined or not, but do I trust that God is just? And the emphatic answer to that is yes. God is just. Eternal life is a gift. The second thing is he said, it starts now. You see, Jesus defined eternal life in terms of knowing God. Eternal life is not something that happens after we finish this life. It's, a, it's, it's this life that we can experience now. But as Jesus himself said it in John 10.10, and I know you've already, no, you haven't been there yet because you started in John 13, sorry. But John 10.10 says, Jesus said, I came to give life and life abundantly. That is, in my mind, eternal life, the life of knowing God. Alistair McGrath wrote a really great book of the well-known theologian called Christian Spirituality. And he quotes John Calvin. And he said, to know God is to be changed by God. To know, And this is what Jesus was saying in his prayer at the Last Supper. To know God is to be changed by God. The idea of a purely objective knowledge of God is thus precluded. For someone to speak objectively about knowing God is as realistic as the lover speaking dispassionately of the beloved. To know God is to be changed by God. And this is eternal life, that they may know you. Eternal life starts now. Um, thirdly, it involves acceptance of a son. What does Jesus say? Eternal life is a gift, no doubt. It's not a contract that requires consideration from our part, right? What a boring idea to talk about at church, but it's, it's not a contract which requires consideration. We don't make payment. For a contract to be kind of on foot at law, you need to make some form of consideration, some form of payment, but actually Jesus says, no, no, it's a gift, but it does involve acceptance of his son. It involves acceptance that God sent Jesus the Messiah, that Jesus is the Messiah. So this prayer reminds us that God is the director over all of the actors in human history. He has authority over all people, and he has authority over all matters relating to eternal life. My final reflection is this. God is the director, and he has given each one of us a script. I have brought you glory on earth by completing the work you gave me to do. You know that the the, the Greek word for, for work in that passage is ergon, which means job or task. That word ergon is actually where we get the word in English, energy, derives from that Greek word. And it's interesting, when you look at that word... When Jesus was talking about bringing glory to God through the work that he had accomplished, it's easy to think of work in spiritual terms. Was Jesus referring to kind of spiritual work and other, other forms of labor, other forms of jobs out there, other forms of work? But the great news is that he wasn't because the, the, basically the equivalent to that Greek word in the Old Testament in terms of the, the Hebrew word is tied to this idea of, in Genesis chapter 1, Genesis chapter 2, and Genesis 3, when Adam and Eve are working in the garden, it's the same, it's the same concept. It's the same Hebrew word, which, which runs in parallel with that Greek word. So the short point is that Jesus wasn't differentiating between spiritual work and other forms of work. God is deeply interested in what we do on Monday. You can bring glory to God through the work you do tomorrow morning, as a car mechanic, an accountant, an IT consultant, an HR consultant, even a lawyer. I wrote a whole book about this called Love Mondays. Because, you know, most Christians, I find, we talk so much about what's happening in our lives in church, but we spend so much time at work, like 40 hours plus. And the truth is, is that God has given you work to do, a vocation. Jesus, I mean, I've written a whole piece on this. And I'm I'm not going to go there, but what I'm going to say is this, is that God is deeply interested in what you do on Monday. The script for your life, the work that God has called you to, is your vocation. Work is not a necessary evil. And that work, that when Jesus was saying, I brought you glory on on earth, God, by completing the work you gave me to do, he, he was pointing out three things. One, first, God has a work, God had work for Jesus to do. It was a unique uniquely fashioned for him. God has work for all of us to do that I believe is uniquely fashioned for us. John Calvin said that we all have a vocation, a voca, a calling, a calling which starts tomorrow. There is no such thing, Martin Luther said, as an ordinary job, only a holy calling. So tomorrow morning when you go to work, you start with the proposition that God, you have called me to this job, to this work, and through this work, I want to glorify you. God has a work for you to do. Labor in all its forms. Adam and Eve in the garden. The same word for work in Hebrew is used here in the Greek, the same equivalent. Do you know a, a QC, a well-known QC lawyer, Queens Counsel, so senior barrister, he'd been practicing law for 40 years, and he came to a Christian lawyers conference a couple of years ago, and I'll never forget him coming up to, to, to me at the end. And you know, he said to me, someone, after 40 years of legal practice, no one has ever told me that God is interested in my work as a lawyer. I thought, that's tragic. Are you telling me that God doesn't care about what you do for your job that you spend, well, as a barrister, maybe kind of 80 hours a week at? Seriously, that's tragic. Jesus reminds us that there's no differentiation between spiritual work and ordinary work. It's all work that can glorify God if we choose to let our work glorify God by the way we engage with work. And when I say vocational work, by the way, I'm also talking about voluntary work. I'm talking about maybe tomorrow you're at home with the, with, with, with the kids. That's, that's, a, that's also a vocation, a station, a calling, to be faithful at the vocation God has called us to. Jesus said, I was faithful to the work you had called me to. First, God had given him a work to do. Thirdly, uh, sorry, secondly, the motivation for work was God's glory. You know, at the end of your working week, sometimes as I think, God, was, was my work and the way I conducted myself this week about, about you or about me? Was it about me make, making myself look really good or making you look good? In fact, did I think about you much at all this week when I was at work? And I'm really convicted and challenged by that. I brought you glory on earth by completing the work you gave me to do. So third point is faithful in completing our work. When all is said and done, can we look back and say, God, I was faithful to the vocation you called me to. So as we wrap up this morning, and I finish with these these reflections, going back to John chapter 17, Jesus gives us the snapshot on his relationship with the Father. He was so intimate with the Father. He was one with the Father. But also John chapter 17, 1 to 5 reminds us of the sovereignty of God, that God is the director and we are the actors. And so I'm going to leave us with all a question today. Because I really, you know, we hear hear so many sermons. I've heard a lot of sermons. I've even heard my own sermons. And it's easy just to hear another sermon and think it's for the person behind me or to the left or to the right. But I just hope that this message is for you this morning. Because I want you to reflect on something when you leave. I, I encourage you this week, to let this reflection just percolate in your heart and your mind. And this is, and this is my reflection. Is God, is God the director, and are you the actor? Or are you the director, and God is the actor? Because the thing is, is that it's easy to kind of reverse it out, and, and say, God, here's your part. Here's the script I have for you, God to play in my life, like Sundays, it's all yours. But the rest of the week that, that's that's all mine. That's challenging. Because like, I don't know about you, but I, I can get so busy with my job, so busy with family life, that I think to myself, man God, did I give you did I give you opportunity to direct my life this week? Or was I just like the um, director and you were like in fact an actor out there on the side. I would just call you in as required to play a little part, and then I would um, push you out again. I leave you with this, this thought, and my prayer is that, God, that you'd truly be the director in our lives, that we'd let this prayer soak into our lives, and that we'd be able to, to pray that prayer that Jesus prayed, God, you know, my time's in your hands. May, I, I give glory to you, God, and may I com- complete the work you've given me to do. Let's pray together.